very red. And it just doesn't stop being red. That's why I like this film. Hello, I'm Scott Morris. And, and, I, uh, <laughs> and I'm Craig Eastman. And this is the Fuds on Film commentary for A Clockwork Orange. Not A Clockwork Red. What is this madness? It's very red. I don't remember. I was going to say, there we go. I don't remember it staying that red. But, yes. uh, but yeah, it's more of a computer segmentation fault, isn't it? Yes. <laughs> Opening credits. Yeah, it's a Stanley Kubrick film, which, of course, just off the back of our Stanley Kubrick retrospective. And this is, we thought, perhaps the most interesting one to chat about. Yeah, it crossed my mind to... um, It crossed my mind that we might look at... um, Obviously, it's not a Kubrick film, but in keeping with the outlier theme that we could have looked at 2010. But I think, actually, given that we were talking about Kubrick and he's such a sort of intense filmmaker and quite... (laughs) Quite apart from um, quite apart from what's his chops who directed two thousand and ten, I think it makes sense to stick to his body of work, Scott. Yes. Apologies to what's his chops, whose name I still can't recall. Stanley Watts's chops. Yes. Yeah. Here we are in the milk bar. One of the predictions of the future that never quite came through. No, what's the name of this milk bar again? The. Uh, it's gone right out of my head as well. Begins with a V. We're off to a flyer here, Scott. Something like Velocet or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, so the, the whole drugs mixed with milk never quite caught on as a delivery mechanism. There Carova. you are, the Corova, sorry. <laughs> it's beginning with a V as it does. There go. <laughs> a silent V, all right. <laughs> yes. Beginning straight away with, I suppose, what is quite an iconic image. Um you, if you showed that image to any number of people in the street, they would tell you immediately what film it's from. Yeah. And one of the few sets they actually built for this film. Mm. Drunks. Drunks never change. <laughs> Always drinking. <laughs> he first set his eyes. Oh, and Sweet Molly Malone, I thought he was going to say on fire there. <laughs> I would have been terribly remiss. You're already down and out. You want to set fire to your eyes? Much debate as to which um, as to which underpass in London this actually is. Apparently, one of four could be one of four almost identical underpasses, and I don't know if there's been a definitive answer. If there is, certainly I couldn't be bothered to dig deep enough to find it. <laughs> it's not much of a tourist location, anyway. I mean, no. Look, it was shot. Something was shot here, yes, but it's still just a rundown underpass. <laughs> yes, it's curious that one would one would assume from the uh, from the accents throughout the film, uh, and I suppose this for our listeners outside of the UK, this is perhaps pertinent that the accents on display here are very much Northern English accents. Yet um, the film was shot pretty much exclusively in and around London, yeah, uh, and the the outlying counties, which is obviously in the southeast uh, of England. Well, close enough. Yes. And there we go. Film says it's stall out pretty early. Yeah. <laughs> I think this this is the sort of thing that I think when I first saw Clockwork Orange, I suppose probably when I was about 13, 14, it kind of thematically goes over my head. But I suppose... Uh, it was written when, 1962, Anthony Burgess wrote it? Hmm. 
And I guess there was, at the time, there was a great fear amongst the older generation that um, the sort of the social and sexual revolution of the 60s meant that the younger generation was growing up without quite the quite the moral um, integrity that they felt they themselves had. And uh, this little guy here in the underpass, his little rant about, you know, a man being preoccupied with space and the moon. No one's really paying attention to what's happening, uh, as, as he would probably have you believe, society falling apart. Although, as we'll see, the uh, as we go on, the uh, the teenagers in question, not necessarily the worst offenders. Yeah, I was reading one of the many analyses of this where it, it was using this kind of, that section about the technology, outstripping it to reframing this as being art's response to technology running away with you know, getting so far ahead of morality that, and this, that, and so on and so forth. But then it, that it, sounds a bit of a stretch, doesn't it? It, it? it was sort of reasonably well argued, but it was mm. then hanging quite a lot of weight on a scene where a psychopath beats someone to death with a concrete phallus. Yes. So it, it's difficult to know how much stock to put ah, into that on that basis. The rocking machine. <laughs> More on the rocking machine later. I was doing some reading about the rocking machine, Scott. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, it's the danger with a lot of Kubrick's films, actually. I think um, I think because Kubrick's such a renowned filmmaker and his films, they're certainly, certainly usually very intense and often very artful in terms of the way they're shot and, and structured. But thematically, I I think we might have discussed this in the, the podcast, um, thematically I can't help but feel that sometimes people overread into it. Yeah. Um, and I was surprised actually this this morning when I watched uh, The Clockwork Orange again as a refresher before we went into this podcast this evening, this commentary rather. Um, I suppose it had been 15, 16 years um, since I, the last I saw this was when it was reissued in the cinema, I think. And it was actually whether or not it's the development of my critical faculties as I've got older, I was actually surprised at actually how easily I felt it was to read this time. Um, I don't really... I feel like it kind of sets its stall out and it's quite obvious that thematically what it's hoping to achieve and I don't think there's a lot more to be read into it. No, I mean, a lot of the mis- the interpretation or misinterpretation is really just about how it's showing the violence here. Yeah, I was going to say, the, that's the big thing that people seem to get hung up on, right, is the representation of violence. And I think you mentioned that in the previous podcast, actually, that Anthony Burgess himself, the author of the book, wasn't necessarily... I love how over the top that the acrobatics yeah. of that guy barreling yeah. out the window are. Um, this is just a WWE match at this point, isn't it? <laughs> it's amazing. Absolutely love that. Yeah, Anthony Burgess, the author of the novella, himself was quite at odds with Kubrick's representation. So I suspect we'll talk about that more as we go along. It's another one going for the uh, themed gangs sort of idea. So it's basically a ripoff of the Warriors. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. There you go, DAV485Q, often misread as 4850, as I found out when I researched this earlier, which I found some guy claiming to have boxed up in pieces in a garage trying to sell it online. (laughs) Hey! (laughs) It's a car called a Probe 12 or something um, that Kubrick selected because it was quite, quite astonishing looking at the time, I suppose. 
There you go. Some guy was going to flog it to you from his garage. <laughs> so I'd like to know where it is now. Apparently an episode of Top Gear, actually. Um, there was, um, or in the run-up to an episode of Top Gear, there was an online vote as to which of several cars um, they would like to see, the audience would like to see restored um, as, a, as a project uh, across the series of the show. And uh, the guy who owns this car had... Uh, Offered this one up, but it wasn't selected. There you go. Utterly useless factoids for you there. <laughs> I suppose if anyone hasn't... I wonder... I doubt very much that anyone who hasn't seen the film before is going to be listening to this commentary now, but um, the first thing to throw people, if not the visuals, um, the language spoken in the film. Nadsat. Yeah, the strange mix of well, largely Russian and yeah, Slavic Slavic slang and and I guess what Cockney slang as well, really, isn't it? Well, that and baby talk, yeah, like gutty words <laughs> and whatnot. Yeah. <laughs> I was fascinated to read that actually, and it kind of makes sense that Burgess developed this kind of dialect. Um, I always wondered why it seemed odd stylistically and it actually makes complete sense when you consider that Burgess apparently, in his own words, um, he developed it to uh, to avert the likelihood of the book becoming dated by contemporary language, mm-hmm. which kind of makes sense. It's quite obvious. But um, also as well, there was a suggestion that in, in some form um, Burgess was kind of worried about, I suppose, I would imagine what the, the pitfall that or the trap that he felt perhaps Kubrick had fallen into in making the film, that the glorification of the violence, people would have some sort of primal voyeuristic response to it. And it was, this language was also designed to sort of abstract the the reader somewhat, abstract them kind of a level away from the... Yeah, well, it, it means that you're kind of relying on the narrator to put you through. And it's, I suppose it's a way to try and obscure the fact that he's, uh, well, not exactly unreliable, but... Um, misleading narrator in a sense that he's clearly psychotic and makes no uh, yeah. apology for that but I've re- at I've the wrestled- same time is sort of thinking that he's actually normal as far as he's concerned yes I wrestled with that a little bit earlier actually because I also listened back to some of the comments you, I mean you, I didn't really speak that much about Clockwork Orange in our, our uh, Kubrick episode there um, but you, you had a lot of interesting things to say yourself and when you'd mentioned that I think there that Alex might be an unreliable narrator. And I thought about that a lot earlier this morning and I thought, yeah, I wasn't, I'm not sure that technically he is an unreliable narrator so much as perhaps just a deluded one. Yeah. He's a very reliable, amoral narrator. <laughs> That's perhaps the best way of putting it. And there you go. It doesn't, doesn't take long to get into one of our, the first sort of controversial scenes of the movie. Mm. The whole singing the rain bit apparently ad-libbed um, after... The initial script just called for the done in more or less silence, but that didn't seem to be a bit, well, a bit too sterile, so. Mm. <laughs> Go on, come up with something, Malcolm McDowell. Okay, I'll sing, singing in the rain while beating someone up and raping someone. Okay. Whatever floats your boat. And what's interesting about that, if it was actually ad-libbed, was that uh, obviously Kubrick not only ran with it in the scene here, but also the uh, 
yeah, singing in the, the rain theme. To yeah, calls calls back to it later in the film. It's not the best backing vocals, really. No. Of course, it just comes to it. Really, starts to heighten how uncomfortable a scene it is in a number of ways. Yeah. Yep. Never found Clockwork Orange a particularly easy watch for well, very obvious reasons. Well, it does have yeah. a lot of style, and you know, clearly, Alex is charismatic in lead role. It's just such a his grotesque actions make it tough to watch yeah that was my complaint with it I think or the reason that I'd never felt as engaged with it that we discussed in the podcast was that really there, there's not a there's not really a sympathetic character to be had um, I find it very difficult to engage with emotionally other than you know in terms of your response to I suppose revulsion will be the yeah. the the main emotion you'll experience going through quite a lot of this movie Um but I do have to say that after watching it again this morning, I did I did enjoy it a lot more on this watch than I had previously. I may have to reassess where this stands in my my pecking order of Kubrick movies. It's, it's still not going to be anywhere close to my my favorite. Oh, not not that it won't be anywhere close, but it's not going to be my favorite Kubrick movies. I don't think. But I definitely did. It's an odd movie to say that you've enjoyed, but you know, for given values of. Mm. What appreciate that means. perhaps more than enjoy. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I certainly appreciate it um, much more than I did previously. An unwieldy tap system. Mm. As we're in the milk bar, Scott, what are you drinking tonight? Brahma. Oh. The Brazilian export. I myself am drinking Laganita's IPA and I've got some Blue Moon as well. Dutch wheat beer. I haven't had this one before. It's not bad. Here's our first... I suppose our first inroads to Ludwig van. Alex's... A preference for um, preference for classical music, particularly Beethoven, which mm. again is ninth. Although curiously, there's more Rossini in the film than there is Beethoven, but yes, Celebi. <laughs> arguably, arguably, it doesn't play as important a role. No, but uh, yes, specifically the fourth movement of Beethoven's ninth, Ode to Joy, as most of us will know. Any of us who have watched Die Hard. <laughs> of course, the, the major difference here being it's played on a Moog synthesizer, a fairly new invention at the time, which is... Yeah, which a lot of the soundtrack. Um, quite a bit. One of the other things that surprised me listening to this was actually still how kind of fresh that soundtrack feels, even though it's said vintage, vintage uh, synth equipment and whatnot. It hasn't actually aged all that much. Quite a Quite a timeless film in a lot of respects. But I suppose this yeah. is our this is our first clue that Alex um, 
and we'll see it in a little bit more detail soon, but he has this um, visceral response to classical music. It conjures up imagery for him, that very primal emotions for him that he uh, he feels compelled to react to, uh, which is an interesting notion that um, fell in again. Please stop me if I'm reading far too much into this, but it's not really to read into it. It's just an observation I found that as this... Um, enemy of society that he is and and uh, sort of encapsulating the fear that the older generation have about the younger children that the the one thing that he does have a, an emotional response to is um is something classical and of a generation far before his own the same cannot be said obviously of ceramic rocking phalluses <laughs> If it moves, kiss it, and then suck it and see. There you go. Some first-rate, some first-rate phallic graffiti there. Yeah, almost all the art you see in the film has been, well, either is or has been become pornographic, which mm. is it's a, an unusual way of showing society's. Collapse, I guess, in this instance, it's kind of hard to say. Of course, mm. it's, it's it's all about how totalitarian governments may operate, and yeah, it's, I'm not sure how well that comes across, but it's yeah, it certainly seems to be the background of it. Yeah, it's more of a background detail than anything else, but it does it does it serves it serves a very important purpose in sort of fleshing out the world. And realising the world as it does um, in a thematic sense. As you do. Never really understood why they've added the snake. It wasn't in the books. That's really the only time you see it. Um... (laughs) Not at all familiar with Burgess's novella, so. Why so grumpy? Very conveniently positioned snake there. <laughs> now that sculpture there, which the the name of which I've forgotten, I will tell you in just a second. Um, is by the artist Herman Mackink. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but he is also the artist responsible for the ceramic rocking phallus, known as the rocking machine. And neither of them were produced specifically for the film, but uh, Kubrick was aware of Mackink's work and requested their their inclusion in the movie. I think it's Jesus Unlimited, I think, something like that. It's, it's called that little sculpture. There you go. A far more visual aid and understanding 
the emotions that classical music <laughs> brings to, brings to mind for Alex. What we're what we're saying is perhaps don't uh, don't surprise him with uh, Beethoven in the streets. <laughs> Some peculiar fashions on display for most of this film. Curious in that it's, it's immediately of the era and yet also completely removed from it. It's, it could absolutely, especially the wallpapers and things, it could absolutely be quintessentially mid to late 60s or it could be 2060. Yeah. <laughs> the indifference of his parents as well sat quite uneasily with me. I wasn't sure if uh, if that's the same in the source novel, novel whether we're supposed to understand that his parents are as big a part of the problem as Alex himself because it seemed very indifferent to his yeah. He seemed not really to <laughs> care care about delving all that as, as his mother's speech here signifies, you know. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're not really all that interested aware of what their son does. They're certainly not sympathetic characters, which they could quite easily have been portrayed as, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I love that shot. Yeah. It's the social worker for a couple of frames there as we pass the door. Yeah. We'll speak to him in a minute as the realisation dawns on Alex. We've had quite a few scenes already. Again, I, it hadn't stuck in my head so much, but I suppose since in the last decade or so I've, I've, I've become more and more involved in photography myself. I kind of really noticed this time around quite how much Kubrick and... Um, his cinematographer are working with wide angle lenses in this movie. Yeah, so it's all shot in like a ten millimeter lens, more or less, isn't it? Yeah, and it's. I was trying to. I was trying to figure out where he was going with that. What he was tr- again. What is he trying to say with that? And again, at the risk of reading too much into it, I'm not sure. There's obviously there are there are benefits to working with a wide angle lens, um, and he would do it again in uh, quite notably in um, The Shining. Um, which wasn't the film after this, but the film after that, again, there was quite a lot of use of wide-angle lenses there as well. And it does, from a perspective point of view, it does, um, it can make things quite grotesque, quite alienish. It can throw the geometry of a scene out and make it quite, quite uncomfortable in a sense. Uh, And, you know, and you can have the foreshortening effect towards the, closer to the lens and things that can, and it renders a few scenes quite alien in a in a sense, and I I can't help but feel that perhaps that was another another way to make the viewer uncomfortable, to make things just a little bit removed from what was familiar. But again, I maybe I may be completely imagining that, but it's it's really interesting to watch. The annoying thing about it with wide angle lenses from this period is that quite a lot of scenes there's a lot of chromatic aberration. Um and distortion towards the outside edge of the lens, but that's just me being picky. It's still quite a nice aesthetic. This is a curious scene. I've always thought this guy is uh, 
overplaying his hand a bit here. It's just it's just a little bit overcooked yes. this performance. Overplaying his hand, yes. <laughs> well we say that, but we know what we know what a perfectionist Kubrick was for his takes and you have to imagine that this is the performance he wanted out of this guy. Yeah. I'm not I've always felt uncomfortable about this scene and I wonder because obviously later on in the movie when Alex ends up in prison there's um it's inferred that he's subject to abuse. Um, physical and mental from not just the inmates but from the uh, the wardens as well and I can't help but wonder that there's a suggestion here that this guy, the social worker um, Alex's social worker is um, <laughs> the teeth in the glass I noticed, <laughs> how did I not notice that before um, whether there's a suggestion there that he is perhaps inappropriate or has been inappropriate towards Alex or I mean, certainly. This is this is the character which, if this guy hadn't been cast, this is the we've seen Leonard Rossiter in a couple of his films. This mm. is the role that Leonard Rossiter <laughs> yeah. would have played if he was in a Clockwork Orange. <laughs> there you go, Don. Son. How have I never noticed the teeth in that before? When he specifically. <laughs> Not at all suggestive there. No. Another, another slight change from the novel is the two girls that he meets here are, in the novel they are ten and he drugs them, which is oh, somewhat different from the, the uh, consensual sex scene that's popping up. Oh my days. And then what is in the novel is does he have sexual contact with them? Mm. Oh my days. It's perhaps a little more understandable that he himself is, uh, I think, 14 in the novel or something like that. He's certainly right. not, well, it's kind of ambiguous what age he is here, but I mean, he looks like he's 20-something, doesn't he? Yeah, I was going to say. I know say, it I mean, says he's at school, but still. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's, we're obviously supposed to understand that he's sort of mid to late teens, perhaps, but yeah, he does look substantially older than that already. <laughs> this is the first time I noticed the Heaven 17 reference there as well. I'm assuming the band's Heaven yeah. 17 got their name from a clockwork orange. <laughs> yeah, perhaps wise that they... It's wise that, although I suppose we're told this guy's still school-aged, that actually they cast older actors...
Yeah, you you really want your fuzzy warbles played in top end equipment. Listen, I I'm all about I'm all about the analog tube amps and stuff for your <laughs> for fuzzy warbles. Yeah, fuzz, you're a fuzzy it. warble file, really, aren't you? Oh yeah, lots of fuzzy warble cables. You won't catch me within a million miles of an MP3. <laughs> fuzzy warbles just give it that warm sound kit, uh, <laughs> Scott. Sorry, I'm not sure why I called you by my wife's name there. Well, we've been very close. Many years. We have, we have <laughs> Scott. We have Scott. I'm comfortable with that. <laughs> this scene is weird, and it's always been weird. I don't. It's, uh, <laughs> It ought to be. <laughs> Were it not for the subject matter. Yeah, what Kubrick was hoping to achieve with this, I'm not sure, but. I mean, it seems like an unwanted little bit of slapstick in the midst of a, 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 a comedy, a bit of satire that's not really edging that way mm. I mean most of this is really quite dark in nature and that bit is just silly <laughs> it doesn't it doesn't feel like it adds much Oh, then. Yeah. We'll soon see how this is perceived as insubordination amongst Alex's ranks is dealt with. <laughs> Cold, dead eyes, like a shark's eyes. You know, McDowell, you can see why he was cast in a role like this, though. I I mean, aside from his acting talents, um, Mark McDowell, he really does have... He's he's got he has got quite a striking face, but not in a not in the sense that his features are necessarily striking, but he's got a dangerous face. Yeah, a face that's either arresting or should be arrested. Yes.
Loco Plus. Do you like their tight sweater? <laughs> A lot of bad monkey. names seem to have come from... Uh, they do, don't they? And quite an astonishing scene, this. One that always sticks out for me, and I'm not quite sure why. Very, this is a sort of... One of the few scenes is very graceful and balletic in its, its violence, I think. We shall see again, as mentioned before, surprising Alex with uh, classical music. I think here he says something, he hears, he hears classical music coming out of the window, right? Yeah, there we go. <laughs> oh, Georgie boy. I love that shot. The colour of that scene. I love it. The sort of haze. You tell those mm. th that shot and the shot preceding it were filmed on entirely different days. <laughs> Completely different lighting conditions. And again, that's one of the things that surprised me when you hear about Kubrick being such a perfectionist that actually... Detail like that, maybe not as important as performance detail for him. I wish I could name, remember the name of the marina this was filmed in, in London. Yeah. A reminder for his uh, underlings to stay in check. One of the things that Kubrick said about the use of Beethoven in this film is that he suggests that the it's just the failure of high culture to have any morally refining effect on society. You know, as with Hitler and Nazis, of course, famously very fond of the old Beethovens as well, and didn't do them much good or anyone else at the time. So. Oh, the cat lady. 
There's an instance of Chekhov's large plaster penis. <laughs> the rocking machine cometh. The orientation of which is always... It's the future, they do things differently there. See some of the effect of that wide-angle lens at the edges of the frame there. And here, actually. As we mentioned in the podcast, the, the violence in this film uh, was often brought up as a by defence lawyers occasionally as, as a corrupting influence, which eventually led to Kubrick just deciding to pull the damn thing completely from Britain. So mm. it wasn't it was never actually banned, but he certainly just had enough of answering the questions. Yeah, it's one of the great misunderstandings, isn't it? Even to this day, people still talk about the movie being banned, but it was never, never ever banned in the UK. Yeah. And you, He's always defended it as being a work of art, and he said something interesting that, that the point he wanted to make was that the film has been accepted as a work of art, and no work of art has ever done social harm, although a great deal of social harm has been done at those who thought to protect society against the work of art that they regarded as dangerous. Which is an interesting concept, and I'm not entirely sure that it's right unless you start redefining art yeah. to mean something that's not... Yes. Not harmful, because if you look at anything like the kind of propaganda films that have been produced by uh, Triumph of the Will, all these kind of things, mm. is I think it would be hard to argue they are not art, but it's also equally hard to argue that they are not harmful to society. Yeah. You know? That sounds more like the sort of considered statement of a wounded artist than it does someone yeah. thinking 100% rationally. <laughs> yeah, I, that's an interesting statement. I hadn't heard that before, but yeah, I immediately disagree with it uh, as, as you do yourself, but it's, it's interesting that that's the the stance we take. You can see the argument for that, even if I, mean, I think it's a flawed argument. He's very clearly of the, the, the school of thought that films cannot influence people. Uh, this is why he's saying that, you know, the violence, that it can be as violent as it it's wants a, to be. It doesn't because it can't possibly affect people, but I, I really don't think that's entirely true. No, and I, I think regardless of whether the evidence is in there or not, I think the point at which you make a definite statement like that, you're immediately wrong anyway, yeah. just, by, just by default. I generally, I generally find when it comes to uh, 
debates on yeah. absolutes very rarely hold up, do they? Yes, when it comes, especially when it comes to human behaviour and psychology. It's interesting. It's interesting to me that Anthony Burgess took took such offence at the movie and Kubrick's handling of the material, because from what I gather, Burgess himself, you know, later in life, distanced himself from his from the work. Yeah, he he always thought it was kind of uh, sophomoric. He, he does not regard it as anything like his best uh, work. Yeah, to quote him, he said he described it as. He said his novel was, quote, a jeu d'esprit knocked off for money in three weeks. Yeah. And that seemed to haunt him for a long time. I found I found a statement. I found, well, I found an interview with him, and there's, there was a really an interesting part of it, if I might, if I might be indulged. He seemed really, really to regret having written Clockwork Orange. The book I am best known for, or only known for, is a novel I am prepared to repudiate, which is a <laughs> pretty strong statement for an author to make. Written a quarter of a century ago, a jeu d'esprit knocked off for money in three weeks. It became known as the raw material for a film which seemed to glorify sex and violence. The film made it easy for readers of the book to misunderstand what it was about, and the misunderstanding will, will pursue me until I die. I should not have written the book because of this danger of misinterpretation. And then he mm. goes on to, uh, to refer to it much in the same way that D.H. Lawrence was hounded by sort of latter adaptations of Lady Shatterley's Lover. Yeah, his repu- his reputation was sullied by other people's interpretation of his work, um, but it strikes me that if he is an author, author, and again in his own words, he dismissed he dismissed the movie as being too didactic to be artistic, um, mm-hmm. and it it surprises me that he would get that that heated about it if he himself was that willing to repudiate his work that he would care so much about another's interpretation of it. But then, you know, I guess that's, it's his right to have an opinion of someone else's interpretation of his work. But um, mm. my argument has been where authors take umbrage at filmmakers' um, treatment of the work as well. Don't, don't, don't give up your right to the material then. Yeah. Don't take, don't take the money if you're that bothered about the treatment of your work, because the point at which, I'm sorry, but even at this point in the history of cinema, it is well understood that the point at which an author takes work in exchange for a studio being allowed to, uh, you know, a movie studio being allowed to adapt their work, they lose all right or ownership over that work. And it's entirely up to someone else how your work is interpreted. So it seems a bit churlish to complain about it after the fact, but... We are we are talking about one of the most revered works of literature of the the twentieth century, certainly in Britain. So I'm not sure. I mean, there's a lot of interesting to debate to be had there, but I've also got beer, so <laughs> I'll give my mouth a break for a second. And we have a ghost spoken entirely over the. The central concrete phallus based <laughs> assault, which we were all looking forward to so much. <laughs> That's it. The highlight. This guy, this police officer, I haven't looked up the answer, but he's got a very familiar face. I want to say there's, there's a contemporary actor who shares a lot of uh, his characteristics, his facial characteristics, but I can't for the life of me think who it is I'm trying to recall. What was, 
I've always thought he looks a bit like the guy that's the uh, now the leading the Walking Dead. No, it's not him. His name I can't bloody remember either, despite the fact I watched The Walking Dead religiously. Rick Grimes. Who the heck? What's the guy who plays Rick Grimes? Here we go. Here comes Mr. What's-His-Chops again. <laughs> Anyone who listens to our podcast regularly will be uh, familiar with my complete inability to recall names. <laughs> And of course, now we start to get a... Sorry, Scott, what were you going to say there? Well, it's, it's all so civilised, isn't it? Well, that's what I was going to say, is we now start to see the... Uh, we now start to see the violence and oppression bestowed upon citizens by the state. And that, this is the point at which the film sort of seesaws and it becomes far less clear that the... Uh, it becomes far less clear that Alex is to be considered the villain of the piece. From this point onwards, mm. I think this is the point at which the the questions around the state's intervention into people's lives becomes starts to come to the fore. I've always been confused by this scene. Do you do you interpret this as Alex? Do you find that he's being genuinely regretful here of his actions, or or is this just an act? Trying. No, I think he's already established himself as a inveterate liar in these kind of situations. Mm. So, uh, I'm sure he's very desperately trying to get out of the trouble that he's in. But yeah. you know, regretful? Nah, never a bit of it. You don't see any regret in any of his actions. Yeah. And in, indeed, well, specifically in the film, it cuts out the final chapter of the book where there is some kind of small redemption for him and a hope that he would become something other than a died in the wool psychopath. And yeah, but in the film, no, he's... <laughs> He's all out, balls to the wall, nut job. I think that's the scene where it's actually for every single retake it was a different member of the crew spitting on Malcolm McDowell there oh wow really <laughs> more or less yeah oh my days that former orderly cue <laughs> but that's the sort of thing that Malcolm McDowell's of that sort of fearless school of British actors I'm thinking of people like Oliver Reed and whatnot if you, if you remove if you remove mm. a lot of the decision making that was probably being done by alcohol in Oliver Reed's <laughs> case um, he's, he's very much of that fearless kind of I can imagine him having no issue whatsoever with you know 20 people standing in a line waiting to spit on his face for the sake of his performance yeah and it's I think um Given a lot of the subject matter and a, a lot of the performance that um, is called upon from Alex, um, you can understand how crucial it is that you get somebody who's that fearless in this role. Because uh, I guess it's a part that requires it's a part that kind of requires someone to invest themselves fully and not really pull not pull any punches.
you will be spat on. You will exhibit full frontal nudity. <laughs> you will commit heinous acts with and without the use of ceramic phalluses. <laughs> Always found the uh, prison officer here, another one of the overacting club. Yeah. <laughs> uh. Quite often is though the again I can't help but feel it's something that Kubrick re- requests in a lot of his performances because in almost every film he's done there is there will be a performance from someone which maybe not hysterical but certainly very bordering very sort of close to overacting yeah. I mean, if you think of the histrionics of um, Jack Nicholson playing Jack Torrance in The Shining, for example, there's a, you know, there's a good deal of that film where he is just tearing the walls down and over-emoting over massively. Yeah. Um, but even certain performances in, in films like Barry Lyndon and um, 2001's kind of an exception, I suppose. But even if you go yeah. back to stuff like Paths of Glory, the guy, um, oh, what's his name now? played the guy who was hired to shoot the racehorse in The Killing as well. Um, he His performance there, not so much in The Killing, but in uh, Pass of Glory was quite... He was one of the guys who was... Um, he was court-martialed for execution in Pass of Glory. What the hell was his name? Uh, you know, that's an example. Another example of even, even in a film back then of a sort of quite overwrought performance or a performance bordering on overwrought difference in those two cases is they're two characters that are actually on the edge one's you know, fearing for his life in court martial Jack Nicholson's obviously going mental but this mm. guy's just doing his job as was the parole sergeant uh, the youth yeah. social worker earlier so it's it's kind of I don't feel that the action the acting performance is warranted in that particular role whereas I can kind of see it happening in the other ones yeah I get that I think that, yeah it's the, the reasons for are more obvious and even in this movie I think the reasons for with the social worker I don't find it as objectionable as perhaps yourself but it, it's more difficult to understand in the case of this guy I'll grant you but I still I don't know I still feel like there's something to it but I can't put my finger on it I can't imagine that Kubrick would allow someone to get away with a performance like that if he wasn't happy with it. Oh, how, no, much, no, how, much, how much of that is just me buying into the mythos of Kubrick and his infinite takes? Um, <laughs> but yeah, there's got to be a, de- a decision there on Kubrick's part. But yeah, it's, it's difficult, especially in this instance, I think it's difficult to see how it's serving anything. Yeah, I mean, essentially this character is not far away from Blakey from Off the Buses, and that just doesn't seem like something <laughs> you would expect. In I'm looking at him now with his clipboard and the stash, and I literally just thought of Blakey and On the Buses when um, he said that. I hate you, Delarge. Get them buses out. I see. <laughs> 654321. Hey! <laughs> you won't find any Maloco Plus in here. Hey! <laughs> oh, dear. That way in particular. <laughs> Are you now? What have you ever been? A homosexual? 
I was about to say I found it odd that he shied away in this scene from full frontal nudity all of a sudden, and then the box is removed. <laughs> This minister's involvement. He's, this uh, is correct me if I'm wrong. He's clumsily <laughs> placed cipher, isn't he? He's <laughs> I've I've read as I was doing a little bit of research earlier, and you'll be able to confirm or deny this, but my suspicion is that perhaps the the function of the minister or certain now here you go. Sorry, I'll just to digress here. Here's the part where it's. It suggested Alex's narration and the actions of the the guard there suggest that perhaps Alex is subject to, um, shall we say, inappropriate hate behaviour by the authorities whilst in prison. So again, we're this notion that he is somehow contravening or some sort of righteous authority is being undermined. But um, to go back to what I was saying, the the the, the novella feature much more in the way of discourse about religion and his reading of the Bible and whatnot, because I read that actually it's stated more clearly in the book that Alex's um, involvement here in his his relationship with this minister is based more around the fact that he um, he actually quite enjoys the Bible for its for its violence and its sexual content and that it's not actually a means to uh, the bettering himself as it might yeah, otherwise I, appear in this film. I don't think there's any suggestion that he's trying to better himself as much as he's no. just trying to get a, a better work detail and uh, possibly time off uh, your service if you can say that you've been a good little gospel boy, you know? Yeah. Again, it's all yeah. part of his act, right? Yeah. Although in, it's somewhat undermined because in the book he does kill someone in prison as well, which isn't awesome. in the books. <laughs> The notion that these guys here who it's just we've just been told or or it's been suggested are quite possibly abusing inmates in a number of ways or standing yeah. at the front of the room preaching morals the pretense of that. Perhaps one of the more objectionable things in the movie in a lot of ways. Early not draft that. of Passion of the Christ. Though. I was about to say it's not quite the Passion of the Christ, but mm. ah, it's like he's in Caligula again. Yeah, <laughs> oh. <laughs> I'm trying to think of sort of iconic Malcolm McDowell performances. And actually, I think Clockwork Orange is perhaps the only one that I've been party to. I've never seen If, which is another big touchstone for him. That's very much was If the movie that kind of. Yeah. Brought him to the 
and it was specifically what brought him to the attention of Kubrick in this one, I think. Uh, I mean, obviously the guy's done a hell of a lot of films, but I don't think he's ever really been able to escape this one. Yeah. Uh, maybe Caligula might come close just because it's such a horror show. <laughs> but you know, I've two, never watched it. 248 films he's been in, according to the IMDb what? there, so... At this point in his career, I wonder how many of those were st- st- in oh, the last, I mean, last 20, 20 years and straight to video. I mean, he, I mean, he keeps showing up in all sorts of trash, like, what was that, Doomsday film from a while back? The terrible film. Uh, which one, which yeah. one was that? I believe it was called Doomsday. Uh, he has done a lot of sort of or the paycheck yeah. material. The last thing I saw him in which he had any kind of um, appreciable role was uh, Gangster Number 1. The last film that I feel like there was any merit to, but um, he's one of those actors where you have to wonder what went wrong. Was it a personality thing? Was he different to handle? Did the studio shun him and not give him the opportunity of more roles? Because he's clearly a fantastically talented actor and as you pointed out before absolutely fearless I don't know how much of it is he just got typecast into the sort of somewhat urbane English psychopath role so it's a real shame if that's the case that seems incredibly unfair by rights he should be considered probably one of the the great actors of his generation, but he's kind of disappeared down the toilet of will work for food. But then I guess as iconic as some of the performances are, if you go through Kubrick's catalogue, really with the exception of maybe Kirk Douglas and Jack Nicholson, who are the who are the actors who have who have fronted his movies who have had, you know, massive careers? Apart from Leonard Rossiter. Apart from Leonard Rossiter, obviously. <laughs> He's to this day a massive box office draw. <laughs> Even though he died when? Yeah. <laughs> the ghost of Rossiter. I hope when technology reaches, uh, you know, its its first significant landmark in that respect, that the, the first virtual actor we have in a, a feature film is Leonard Rossiter. <laughs> Say in like the, the ninth Die Hard movie or something. Just looking through McDowell's career, it's a bit of a, it's a horror show in a great many respects. It's when you, it's when he's appearing in things like Cyborg Three, the Recycler, yeah, that's <laughs> Wing it. Commander Monsters, yeah, Wing Commander. I, I, um, actually, I remember looking through. It would have been a while ago now, but yeah, noticing that there was uh, one of the Cyborg movies on. That's crazy. He's still with us, right? Oh, yes, yes. Curiously, here in the aisle, and again, I wonder if this is stylistic choice, but in this aisle here in the library, we don't appear to be using the the wide-angle lens that we've seen used earlier in the film. And it would seem like a prime location to do so. 
Yeah. He loves working in these tight spaces with uh, with wide angle lenses, but um, not here. Even at the degree of shooting some of this stuff, no, not this obviously, but uh, some of the action scenes handheld, which is yeah tough to do in the days before steadicams. Big time. Perhaps no surprise that it was one of his guys went on to develop the Steadicam, wasn't it? Was in fact, wasn't it for The Shining? I believe so. Yeah. Whether it was the actual what you commonly think of as Steadicam or a prototype of it, but I think that oh was yeah, crazy early prototype. And then refined by guys like James Cameron and Aliens, I think. I was about to look something up on IMDb there and I can't remember what it was now. Got sidetracked by Steadicam Talk. I think there's something more imposing about. Uh prisons that are built more entirely of concrete with these doors rather than just cells with uh, barred <laughs> cells. It's, it's almost more like a monastery than... Yeah, it also looks infinitely more placed to keep people in. Yeah. That's what I was going to check on IMDb. His cinematographer here is the uh, same cinematographer used who Kubrick worked with on Barry Lyndon and The Shining, right? John Alcott, was it? Yes. That's the one. Yeah, he worked with he worked with uh, Kubrick on this trilogy of Clockwork Orange, Barry Lyndon and The Shining. Sadly no longer with us. Um But given how given how pernickety Kubrick was about the visual aspects of his movies and the visual presentation. Love to sit and have a chat with any of the cinematographers that he's he's he'd worked with over the years, but I think John Alcott in particular, I think, arguably has the most fruitful collaboration in that respect. I think working with working with Kubrick at his most inventive when it when it came to the, the visual aspects of his movies. Mm-hmm. This is really the period where he was he was experimenting a lot more with stuff. It's really interesting, actually, when we go back through. We didn't talk about this in the, the last podcast where we discussed Kubrick's body of work, but interesting to see how he would he would constantly evolve and not really, not even necessarily just evolve a particular technique, but evolve in the sense that he'd he'd work with sort of increasingly advanced techniques through this kind of period or. You know, very, very different visual styles, and it would—it it almost seems like he would—he would like to use the example here. I know I've gone on about it, but like his use of wide-angle lenses here, it's almost like he'd find something like that and obsess over it for intensely for a film, yeah. and then and then move <laughs> on to something. And he'd there'd be callbacks to it in later films, like I'm thinking about here, where we were, uh, you know, the wide-angle shots and corridors and things. 
that arguably sort of um arguably you saw the roots of that and sort of the scenes where we we uh we led general moreau through the trenches at the start of uh yeah um paths of glory but also then you know there's probably as probably his most revered use of that technique is in the maze chase at the end of the shining two films beyond this but in between mm-hmm. In between, we have Barry Lyndon, where I don't, I can't really recall that much use of. I need to, again, I'll need to watch it again, but I don't. Certainly, there's nothing like the prominent use of wide angle that there was here. And then he'll just suddenly, he'll just suddenly come back to it for a very specific purpose. Like he's okay, I've mastered that. I'm going to file it away, and when the time is right, I will call on it for a yeah. another movie. It's fascinating to. That's one of the most fascinating things. Actually, I wish we'd discuss that more in that podcast, but the. To watch him develop his technique, not that he had any single technique necessarily. He's very chameleonic. Feels like you know a very easy phrase to throw about, but he kind of. I imagine it's why people revere Kubrick as a director so much. He's kind of mastered a lot of different aspects and a lot of different techniques that, you know, any number of other directors would probably be happy just to just to have mastered and relied on the one. You'd quite happily chop and change between movies and, and steal parts from elsewhere and come back to them when necessary. Hmm. At least that's what I think. Those have been my observations. Ah, the Ludovico technique. <laughs> Sorry, I've given myself the hiccups now. That's perhaps the second great line there. <laughs> I'm going to pull that out next time we're in the bank. I'm going to startle my wife with it. <laughs> she signs a pay in slip or something. Don't read it, sign it. <laughs> That brutalist concrete architecture of the 60s. You've got to love it. It's so dystopian, isn't it? Yeah. It really suits the theme of the movie so well. So many films made in this period um, would use that architecture. Uh, You think about like that iconic multi-story car park in Get Get Carter, for example. Yeah. Get Carl Carter. It was demolished recently, I think, or certainly within the last few years. Arguably, a lot of that stuff, a lot of the architecture here in the UK was envisaged as uh, sort of a a utopian thing. That was going to be the great wave of the future. All these new towns and and um, buildings built out of concrete in these sort of very angular forms. And actually, um, I think, I think a lot of our a lot of the best movie directors who who worked in and out of the UK realised that actually they they presented a, a, 
far from utopian, they presented a much more dystopian <laughs> vision of the future um, and used them to great effect. And there's actually, there's quite a lot of that in this movie. It informs quite a lot of the visual appeal of the movie. You wonder how kind of the predominant architecture of this period will be seen, given it is it's almost entirely just glass. Yeah. It's uh, any any skyscraper you see is just one big <laughs> a large glass phallus. Yeah. Uh, in many respects. Yeah, it's same because we um the people very polarizing that kind of sixties mid to late sixties, early seventies architecture. It sort of polarizes people. Like personally I find that there can be a great deal of uh going to sound really uh, up myself here but I find a kind of a, I, I find I find a beauty in it in a lot of respects but I can understand why I think it's a situational thing right I think where a lot of them the sites that a lot of these buildings chose to be developed on or were chosen for development here in the UK they would stick out a lot of these buildings became viewed as carbuncles whereas uh, you know a lot of that same form of architecture you find like um is it Oscar Niemeyer, the architect, uh, mm-hmm. who who designed Brasilia? All of the architecture, or like he literally designed the whole, <laughs> or he and his agency designed the whole of the architecture for the capital <laughs> of Brazil. And I would absolutely murder to go there because actually, actually as an entire cityscape, there's something really quite beautiful about it. Although a lot of his, a lot of Niemeyer stuff, that's actually quite disingenuous because a lot of his stuff is far more about curvature. But um, can you see her? But anyway, that yeah, no, there's I, I find a lot to enjoy in that brutalist architecture, and I think it's a shame that a lot of these buildings in these films no longer exist now because they were sort of fast tracked for demolition because of public opinion. Um, Most of this is Brunel University, which is yes, still kicking around in London. But I think the problem with a lot of the architecture of the frame is that not. All the good examples got overshadowed by all of the really bad examples. Yeah. Um, there's so many concrete buildings that were thrown up quickly and oh, dilapidated they're, they're almost as as, as quickly. Just rectangles built for council housing. Yeah, yeah. Is it, you know, any rough kind of towers, and they, they've just they weren't built well in the first place, so they, they rapidly disintegrated, yeah. and um, that that's kind of tarnished the whole the whole movement. I suspect. And that was their discourse into British architecture, brutalist architecture of the <laughs> mid to late sixties. Here we go. Here's here's an iconic image for you. Yeah. At least they hired a proper eye doctor to do this sort of work. Yes. Although still wind up with um, McDowell getting scratched corneas and nearly going blind in one eye. I was going to say, yeah, again, like indicative of quite how fearless the guy is. Surely there were, there must have been ways around this. Let's film and... Uh Kubrick in particular being very very against the whole aversion therapy idea. Yes. And Sorry, what's um we'll come back to that second Scott, if I may digress. Um what's interesting about all these films that he's shown are that they seem whether or not they're tailored that way, but all of the sort of the gangs that we see carrying out the violence in this are all sort of 
Oh, they're very An- familiar, of course. Yes, all all analogs of uh, of his own gang of of the Drugs. Um, sorry, yeah, this is this is where we, this is really the message of the film: the whole aversion therapy thing, which seems like quite a specific message for a film when you think about it. Because I'm not sure at what point, yeah. largely in the West, we were practicing this kind of aversion no. therapy. It seems it seems like using a sledgehammer to crack a nut, but um. I think it's just another extension of the kind of themes of the violence of the state on its yes. totalitarian state opponents. And it's reach into the, the... Populace. The life of the populace, yeah. I mean, you extrapolate it out to, I suppose, the best analogue for it in the West, if you think about sort of the death penalty or something like that in the States. Um, it's raising the same sort of questions um, of how far does the state have a right to intervene. Um... Although in this sense, I suppose we're talking far more about psychological violence than we are the physical violence of actually cessating someone. Mm. Um, and in a lot of ways, this is actually perhaps more disturbing because the whole aversion therapy thing, obviously these people will go on to live, albeit with their mind altered <laughs> by the state. In a lot of ways, that that's probably mm. to be considered perhaps, perhaps something to be more frightened of than... Yeah, but it doesn't... Well, it's clearly there. It doesn't really delve into too much the whole concept of this guy being uh, no stripped of his free will, effectively, and how how that kind of uh, reduces him from being a human to being a machine. The the Clockwork Orange of the title, which it's never actually mentioned in this film, but that's uh, yeah, that seems to be the what. Uh, well, Kubrick Kubrick himself, to quote the man, um, sort of as averse to interviews and whatnot as he, as he was. I can't remember the source of this, um, but again, I was reading it earlier today and Kubrick himself described the movie as, quote, a running lecture on free will, unquote. Um, questioning what right the state has to adopt aversion therapies as conditioning of its subjects. And again, as I say, that, that seems mm. quite a specific and almost, almost misguided message because it isn't, Aversion therapy isn't something really that we've adopted at large, or that we, certainly that we know no. of. Um, but like you <laughs> back s- to MK Ultra again, aren't we? Yeah, I th- <laughs> it's the interview with uh, Michelle Simon, I think it is. Yeah, I think the message is broader than than Kubrick would have you believe. There, like you say, it's lit- it's just about how far into our personal lives the the state has uh, a right to intrude, and in and at what point. Um. Essentially, the the greatest act of violence in this film is the removal of someone's free will. Um, there's a parallel there with, for example, the freedom of speech, in that, um, as individuals, we have we have the right to make the decision to commit these acts of violence, whether or not it's correct to do so. But the arguably the biggest act of violence is to remove someone's capability for that, and mm-hmm. the, I, I suppose. For the for the state to be involved in that decision, um, what was I saying? <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say. Now, I appreciate it's war footage, but I'm not sure at what point we're supposed to accept that men parachute out of out of a plane as an act of violence. <laughs> it's not a violent image, but. Now, now we have violent images. And of course, what's interesting here is that a side effect of this, as we'll learn, um, and it's not intentional, is the use of Beethoven's Ninth, the fourth movement thereof. 
Opus one two five. Which, unbeknownst to these guys, is the uh, is Alex's favourite piece of classical music, and one of the few things that I suppose, well, perhaps the only thing that we are to understand that he genuinely has love or affection for, um, in the movie is about to be is about to be in some sense stripped from him, or perhaps more accurate to say, turned against him. Hmm. Bad state, naughty state, in your bed. <laughs> I mean, here in particular, it's a very committed performance. I mean, you can you can see that horrible brass contraption oh, right God, up yeah. against the eyeball. Yeah, I wouldn't fancy it. No. Can you imagine this guy here, who obviously in this situation cannot possibly legally allow to be just an actor. He's clearly got to be an optometrist yeah, or something is, like yeah. that. Tasked, tasked with installing that mechanism and, and putting saline drops in Malcolm McDowell's eyes. Imagine how that guy must have felt. <laughs> You've got to imagine that at some point during the film of this, he's like, oh my God, what am I doing? I should never have agreed to this. I didn't know I signed up for Saw 4. Is this what they mean by method? <laughs> That's just, that struck me as an odd line. You must take your chance, boy. He's not taking any chances. Who's he referring to there? Because it's not Alex. He's not being offered the opportunity to take a chance. Uh, I assumed it was his chance to have his sentence commuted. Right. That would make sense. <laughs> and I suppose this is the, the first that we see genuine remorse of some sort. Well, if not remorse, then regret on his part, at the point at which he realises that his love of something is to be taken away from him. And I suppose that should probably be the most powerful scene in the movie, right? For all that the um, the the implied rape and, and or murder scenes are the, are the ones that stick out most in people's minds. I think that it's always what comes to mind when I think of a clockwork orange is that scene of him strapped into the yeah the apparatus undergoing the technique. Some more wonderful uh, overacting from her, my favourite character, the prison <laughs> official in this. Oh, coming up later on.
really does have that look of Blakey. Scott, did you know that this was not the first film adaptation of A Clockwork Orange? No. Nor did I until I know, it was, I know it was optioned, but I didn't think anything became of that. Not, uh, uh, yes, no. Um, not in the sense that I suppose it was optioned that way, but um, apparently it was the basis of Andy Warhol's 1965 film, Vinyl. Which I'm now, in, well... I would say I'm interested to see, but I'm not all that interested in <laughs> Andy Warhol's <laughs> film work, actually. <laughs> oh, sick burn. <laughs> Mic drop. I'm going to throw down. Wait for it. The mother-in-law joke's coming next. <laughs> My mother-in-law. No, you can't do that in a rap battle. It's not allowed. What, the slap or the mother-in-law joke? <laughs> the slap, I think mother-in-laws are fair game, but it's not something you really see <laughs> that many rap artists go to the well with, the old mother-in-law jokes. This guy does not have the look of someone who typically would, uh, would be allowed by anyone to walk up to them in the street and slap them and then stamp on their toes. No. I suppose that is Whether the point. Whether or not that's the point, yes. <laughs> But like Leo saying, actually. You want to get up? Now listen to me. Quarter to four in the morning. (laughs) (laughs) You're no friend of mine. Ugh. Unfortunately, those shoes do look worn. <laughs> Whether or not, the, of course, well within the means of the prop department to make them look so, but um, <laughs> I'm sure props and wardrobe between them could achieve that, but still. At the same time, I'm not sure I would put it past Malcolm McDowell to have given everything <laughs> else that he's done just to lick a man's dirty boot. Reminds me of the time when I worked in Edinburgh when one of my colleagues dared me to uh, eat a gummy cola bottle that I found stuck to the sole of my shoe. <laughs> the same colleague who found a half-eaten Big Mac in a box on a shelf with no idea who'd been eating it. Um, <laughs> and without breaking strides after re-entering the store where I worked, strolled past the shelf, said... Ooh, is that anybody's picked it up and immediately began eating it? (laughs) G, shout out to you. Not that you'll be listening. (laughs) 
That shot. <laughs> that shot. That yeah. shot. I thought that might be the one you're talking <laughs> about. Hey. We might just make that the cover art. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I'd screen capped it there. We can, something can be arranged. And here we go. Most unbelievable of, of all. He has been conditioned to be revulsed by the thought of assailing the female form. I quite like that analogy. Like a detective who'd been watching from around the corner. And then this girl takes bow for her performance. <laughs> she will be considered to have had her big break. Uh, <laughs> it's very much the reality TV show of yes, the day. Exactly. The, th- the fact that this is, she considers this a role. <laughs> it's an interesting detail. You've lost me. That's a, that's a strange choice of reaction shot. <laughs> what purpose was that shot serving there? It's not that he was bewildered, I don't think. It just looked like he was kind of... I don't know. Well, there's statements later on. The uh, the writer later on will say that the... The populace needs to be driven towards solutions and things like that. And I don't know whether it's trying to get across the point that the, the populace is not really paying much attention to these kind of things and is kind of baffled by possibly, it. I'm not sure. Possibly. Vacuous it's- indifference. <laughs> there you go the point is that it works <laughs> the end justifies the means <laughs> oh the irony we have assaulted this man physically and mentally but the point is it has worked yes this is there you go this is an interesting musical cue Totally at odds with the rest of the film. Yeah. But I suppose intended to convey how alien this return home is to him. Yeah. And much less, uh, not that it's been frenetically cut so far, but it's much more static and much less... uh, Yeah. Shut around. Yeah. Still the wide angles, but... (laughs) Still the crazy fashion sense. (laughs) Yes. Still the... Wallpaper that ought to be dragged up in front of the Hague. 
And it's not a very futuristic oven in the background there. (laughs) (laughs) No. Clearly, this film has failed. (laughs) Why doesn't he just have a pill that he pops in the microwave and out pops a chicken dinner? (laughs) That's what happens, right? And of course we have, is it Joe, the lodger? Mm, yes. Alex has returned home to find that his room has been rented out. And his snake has died. How shocking. Yeah. One suspects it might be in that belt. <laughs> it's a hell of a look. I do like his chair. Kind of hound tooth pattern or something. Not hound tooth, like, but... It's like the worst game of Tetris you've ever seen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if only, if only one could insert the right block in the right place, there his his whole chair would flash and then disappear. <laughs> <laughs> what is that wallpaper? Oh my days! Joe the Lodger. I suppose what our what our foreign cousins might find hard to believe those those of our listeners uh, outside of the UK that actually this interior decoration's not that far removed <laughs> from what a lot of people from what a lot of people were adopting here in the the UK at this period. I think the the outfits are are more removed from reality than the the interior decor, unfortunately. These things all come back around, Scott. It's probably this room would probably be incredibly hip nowadays. Yes, it's due a revival. With all due respect, this room says aversion therapy to me. <laughs> Don't go fighting here, boys. This is the war room. No, wait. <laughs> Uh, there's one of my favourite lines of the movie coming up here. <laughs> it's so quintessentially sort of um, not necessarily just British but sort of Northern English, Scottish. There you go. Would you like me to make you a nice cup of tea? The general purpose solved to all ailments. Yeah. <laughs> I've just, I've murdered a woman. I've been in prison for a couple of years. I've just gone, undergone two weeks of the most intense, disgusting aversion therapy. I've come back home. My parents are completely indifferent. Someone else is living in my room. Son, would you like a cup of tea? <laughs> There are very few things. A nice cup of tea makes you proud to be British, Scott. It's the first thing you want to hear regardless of the situation. If you're in dire straits to any degree, the first thing you want is for someone to offer to make you a nice cup of tea. And that's why the Empire was a good thing. 
Yeah. That and Empire Biscuits, they're nice too. I like they're nice them. too. But if, if we hadn't... If we hadn't invaded, oppressed, murdered and brutalised <laughs> all of those foreign colonies, yes. we might not have the predilection for tea that we have today. <laughs> and I like to think that those millions of dead souls <laughs> would not begrudge us that outcome, Scott. It's a net positive. <laughs> It's rubbish to be British, really, isn't it? Yeah. We have to live with the guilt of that every time I drink a cup of tea. (laughs) Millions of souls screaming out in anguish. (laughs) Enjoy your cup of tea, Craig. A great disturbance in the force. That also went a bit blakey there, didn't he? A great disturbance in the falls. Hey, I hate you, Vader. You get that kettle on Alderaan. Hey. If the people of Alderaan had been offered a nice cup of tea. The juvenile descriptions it's given just crack me up. It's like, oh, he's a he's been a bad boy. Yes, yes, he's been he's been a naughty boy, a bad boy. He murdered people. He's a psychopath. Come on. However, none of that is as offensive as Joe's dress sense. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm just going to go and change. I'd, I'd, I'd always see them as very much a style icon, so. <laughs> this is, again, I wonder if this is a thing that will translate internationally, right? But this whole thing of um, very much of that period, right? The 60s and 70s in the UK. I mean, hell, whole, whole sitcoms were built around the premise of The Lodger. I mean, is that culturally, is that a thing outside of the UK? (laughs) Someone who would live with you as though they were part of your family, but just having rented a room of your house? Does that even, I'm not aware of how that translates, if at all, outside of the UK. I don't know. I mean, I I, I don't know how common it is, you know, these days either. I mean, flat shares, of course, are very common, but it's always of kind of... Yeah, flat shares, but that's... Rather than this sort of home invasion angle yeah, that it's got I, going on. I don't know anyone who has a lodger these days, but it's, no. it's just something as as being British that you're culturally aware of. It just mm. seems ingrained, right? We all seem to understand this notion that at least for some period it was this thing that just was. People had yeah. lodgers. Like your aunt would have a lodger or something. I never met anyone's lodger, but a lot of people seem to have lodgers. <laughs> Great lodge, eh, readers? Great lodge, areas. Psst, got any lodgers? <laughs> this is a curious shot for me. This slows yeah. them in on a slight piece of turbulence at the base of a bridge. I don't, I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure. It's certainly in slight contrast to how still the marina was earlier. 
when he booted his colleagues into it. But um, here we go, a familiar face from the first 10 minutes. Yeah, the, the boy does not have a lot of luck when he's getting out of prison, does he? It's almost... <laughs> It's almost like a succession of the last things he wanted to happen. <laughs> almost <laughs> as though he's trapped in some sort of dark satire. In the, in the midst of a, a city the size of London, which at this point of time, well, again, although it's supposed to be set in the north, let's imagine that this is actually London that he's living in. And what, the population of London at this point is probably, what, about 7 million or something? And he's yeah. going to bump into all of the people today... <laughs> All of the people he's ever done anything wrong to, purely by random happenstance. For him, today is Jimmy Shaker Day. (laughs) It would have been quite the accumulator. (laughs) (laughs) If he'd put money on this, then the odds would have made it worthwhile him going through the uh, (laughs) pain and anguish to come out the other side a millionaire. Oh, how the hobos have multiplied in the Petri dish of the underpass. <laughs> the great thing about homeless people in Britain is that they're all 70 plus and they all wear flat caps. <laughs> or at least headgear of some kind. You never turn up. Yes. They, they, <laughs> You never see a young homeless person, right, Scott? No, 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 never. Well, well, well. I hate you, Butler. What are the chances of this? <laughs> well. This guy playing, is it Bim? What's his name again? Bim? Bim, that's it. Who's, uh, I don't know if he's currently, but he certainly has fulfilled a role in the popular British soap opera Coronation Street in recent years. Yeah, Warren Clark's very much a mainstream, isn't he? He's, oh, is that it, Warren Clark? Yeah. Yellen Pasco and all these things. That's right the one. Yellen you know. <laughs> or really, in many respects, <laughs> perhaps bizarrely, having had more success than Malcolm McDowell in his post <laughs> his post Clockwork Orange career. Just think, Malcolm McDowell now must look back in this and think I had my cornea scraped, you know, lost my eyesight and eye, and I presented myself in full frontal nude on more than one occasion. I was seen to induct and uh, sorry. I was seen to take part in these heinous acts of violence and sexual violence and uh, really I would have been I would have been better off if I'd been the one going (laughs) 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 I don't know from the interviews I do get the impression that Malcolm McDowell seems relatively happy with his lot in life he's is he? seems to be it's uh, enough happy that he's continued (laughs) keeps working 
it can't be the kind of work that he wants those. Who wants to be in Cyborg 3 when they've been in a bloody Stanley Kubrick movie? Yeah, true. This is this is fascinates me. This take. Right, from this point onwards. I'm counting how many seconds he's got his head underwater here. Yeah, I'm just thinking, if, if I had been in this role, I would actually have died here. I always found this so kind of affecting as well because it's just so senseless. There's there's no need for them to do any of this. And it's just pure abuse of power. That's a long time to be underwater. Fifty nine seconds by my reckoning. In that <laughs> that in that take, obviously including the take before it, his head was underwater for longer, but he is, Malcolm McDowell has had his head underwater for a minute. <laughs> for the glory of his craft. That's up there with um, Radiohead's video for, is it No Surprises? Talk about suffering for your art. Yeah. I would struggle to hold my breath for 60 seconds now just under optimum conditions, I think. <laughs> Let alone being doubled over with my hands tied behind my back, being beaten by some people. With the added fear factor of your head actually being underwater. Yeah. <laughs> The way he drags himself across the ground here has always fascinated me as well. Like he has he has the energy to do it at pace but not quite to stand up. Yeah. We go back to some super wide angle. That's something oh, really. On. Answer the door, Darth Vader. I was going to say, there's something really unsettling about Dave Prowse here. <laughs> is it the shorts? I think it might be the shorts. It's, and how how had, how has he become best known for wearing the costume of Darth Vader when he got to wear this get up <laughs> in a film with arguably more artistic merit than any of the Star Wars movies? Come on. <laughs> Big Dave Prowse. He's just a good guy. He helps people through doors. He gets you across Amazing. the road. Amazing. He lives in with wheelchair-bound men in orange velour tracksuits. <laughs> he crushes people's throats that question the use of the force. He's <clears> just <throat> a good guy. 
What do you mean you can crush a man's throat with just the power of your Gulliver? <laughs> I would not believe it had I not vidied it myself, dear brothers. <laughs> <laughs> All I of a sudden, you. my mulchick scattered corruption. <laughs> I tell you, oh brothers, it was no moon. <laughs> Rather a fully operational battle station that I vidied with my own eyes. <laughs> no, brother, your faith in your droogs is yours. <laughs> These aren't the mal chicks you're looking for. Of course, I was so busy earlier talking through that scene where uh, Cat Lady was assailed that I completely forgot my favourite line of dialogue in this movie. I don't know why it's come back to me now, but also one of my favourite... This histrionic acting as well yeah. is quite apart from everything else. It's quite a feat in and of itself. Yes. Um... Uh, but yes, also one of my favourite lines of dialogue just in cinema history full stop. Nonsensical as it is. The uh, the line about um, an international students contest. Oh yeah. <laughs> Selling magazine subscriptions. Uh, to, be, to be perfectly honest, madam, I'm part of an international students contest to see who can make the most points selling magazines. <laughs> <laughs> Another not particularly subtle performance. No. And, th- and here's, okay. the, here's the call back to singing in the rain, I think, that, that gives the game away. I, get the, I always seem to get the impression that this that scene earlier of him acting like a lunatic was only there to kind of justify Kubrick's position that the, the minister is seen as a, a lunatic of the right and this guy is supposed to be a lunatic, lunatic of the left. Yes, but... When you see what actually happens to him, and once he realises, of course, that this is the guy that raped his wife, I don't mm-hmm. find his actions to be particularly lunatic uh, or have anything to do with lunacy. He just wants revenge, which is, and as he's also using to further his political agenda, yeah. of course. But his, it, it doesn't... His, it, action, his actions after the realisation are actually more rational than his performance before. Yeah, and it, it kind of makes me wonder if that performance was just sort of back calculated to try and get into mm-hmm. a sort of state of balance, which I don't think is necessarily equivalent there's a bit of false equivalence there. I would love to say that I'd had that thought myself, Scott, but honestly, I just can't see past orange velour. <laughs> it's a bold fashion statement. The thing is, for this period of time in the UK, this is one of the more... This is one of the more subtle and sort of contemporary <laughs> outfits that we've seen in this movie. I've got I've got photographs of uncles wearing this shit. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Down the social club in their orange velour dinner jacket and, and trouser <laughs> ensembles. <laughs> Matches nicely with a lime green waistcoat. And that's it. <laughs> but they had a pint of bitter in their hand as well, so they're not gay, all right? <laughs> Just blind. It's this amazing period of British culture, honestly. Oh, my days. 
There, of course, is the penny dropping. Yes, as mentioned, Kubrick does seem to make in points in his interviews of how this was not intended to be balanced, as the, the or, or rather how it was intended to be balanced. That the right and the left is uh, equally insane when you go to the extremes, but I don't think it really quite plays through in this scene. I mean, obviously the acting is over the top, but his actual actions and emotions here are perfectly understandable. If you'd find out this guy had raped your wife. To the point of having her kill himself and you know, crippled yourself, you, you would naturally want some sort of positive or some sort of vengeance upon him. Of course, perhaps the main reason Dave Prowse was cast here, of course, was just his sheer physical strength. It's uh, not particularly easy to carry in empty wheelchair down some flights of stairs as I've found out relatively recently. One with someone in it. Much more tricky. Would be easier if you could call upon the force, I suppose, but you can't have everything. You also have to appreciate his sense of hospitality, because he has made all of the spaghetti. That is a large bowl of spaghetti bolognese. Certainly keep a small family going for some time. Then <laughs> some incredible delivery in this scene. Particularly about, particularly about the wine. <laughs> so I was going to say, have I missed much? But I see we're at the wine and meatball scene. <laughs> I find um, I'm at odds with the notion that this guy, um, this gentleman, as, as upset as he understandably is, at the position that Alex and his gang have put him in. That this society, which cares so little um, about its youth, would take so much umbrage at the notion of this mental conditioning that this guy sees Alex as now as an opportunity to smash the system. Well, I'm not sure... If you mean, does he actually care about the, the flight of Alex? I don't think he does, but I think he's very keen to use him as a political leverage. That's, what, that's to, what I mean, that, that he would be any kind of leverage at all in a society that clearly doesn't give a shit about that anyway. But then I suppose it can, well, from where I'm but, sitting, I suppose it can be excused as a, a mental repercussion, as I say, of, of, of what the guy has endured, that he would be, he's now perhaps at the... Uh, He's now at the fanatical end of the spectrum. Yeah, well, I've, I've kind of been of the the impression, I don't think it's really backed up with anything, but I'd always been under the impression that it was kind of a, a more left-wing government that had been in, in previously, which right. was now now this right-wing totalitarian, more totalitarianism state has come into play. So he would have been one of the old ruling elites and now he right. isn't and he's been shuffled out to the side is, and he's trying to, to rebalance that somehow. If you know is, what I mean. Is that understanding that you have then informed by the book? Because there's, to me, watching the, the movie and never having read the novella, there's no suggestion of that. Um, or is, well, that just some, is that just some deep reading between the lines? 
Yeah, it's really more impressions. I mean, there's there's sort of hints here and there, like the Sorry, way can they... I, can I just kind of just... How majestic is prose? Yeah. <laughs> he hasn't budged an inch with his arms folded. Sorry, Scott. <laughs> uh, things like the way the his uh, apartment building is named is a somewhat uh, communist kind of leaning mm. towards that. Uh, and it, it, it kind of sounds like it's leaning towards left wing and there's uh, implications in the book that the right wing government's kind of came in fairly recently and is in a kind of somewhat precarious state. Mm. And it's not quite so uh, socially <laughs> perhaps, controlling. Perhaps also the clue that the movie starts with about 12 uninterrupted seconds of red. <laughs> <laughs> Before I think even Warner Brothers get a mention. <laughs> Uh, we're, we're going to get trolled by McCarthy bot again, aren't we? I was going to say. Oh, that's right. I'd forgotten about that McCarthy bot. My, my absolute favourite Twitter account. <laughs> oh, dear. To be trolled by a McCarthy bot. <laughs> McCarthy says. Was that some grand idea I had for something in our previous incarnation as the one liner that McCarthy says? <laughs> Isn't it up there with the new adventures of Heath Ledger? <laughs> Where I got boards drawing really crap comic strips. <laughs> I think McCarthy says was something that we'd, we'd mooted on the basis of my having had some sort of experience with, not with Joseph McCarthy himself, obviously, but <laughs> look how majestic Prowse's stance is. Prowse would have been a great Superman. He would have been an amazing Clark Kent. Come on. Yeah. And can I just say, for all the fashion sensibility of the film, I would wear that dressing gown now. Yeah. In fact, I'm going straight on Etsy to see if... <laughs> oh, my days. Speaking of Get I say, Carter. I say. <laughs> Speaking of Get Carter. Earlier, yes. Oh, no, that was a different actor. Sorry. No, you were also thinking... Also in Cornish, yes, uh, I was yes. thinking of... Um, God, yeah. What's it, Alf Garnet? But I don't think that's quite right. <laughs> now this guy, this guy in the brown, um, the brown blazer there, uh, if it can be described as such, he is more recognised in the UK as having played a character the in Coronation the, Street Mainstay. Yeah. Coronation Street, the soap that I mentioned earlier, and his character had this particular trait of uh, <laughs> repeating everything twice. I say twice. <laughs> And it led to one of my favourite headlines of all time because he was, um, he was, bless the guy, it's not something to be laughed at, but he was, he was stabbed in the neck um, at some point years ago. And as he left hospital, the paparazzi were all over him and the Sun newspaper, famous for its headlines here in the UK, its playful pun headlines, had a picture of him with his neck bandaged up. And the headline, stabbed twice, comma, I say twice. <laughs> and it is... <laughs> Works it's, on many levels. <laughs> to this day, I hope he realises, I hope he realises now how much joy that headline <laughs> has brought to me over his hand. How, worth, how worthwhile for him it was to be stabbed twice in the neck <laughs> by some bizarre hoodlum. Um, just just for my benefit. 
the, the fella from Get Carter you're thinking of is a local gangster, Cliff Brumby, played That's by it, Brumby. Brian Mosley, That's who right. is also another Coronation Street regular as Alf Roberts. That's it, Alf Roberts, whereas this guy played, oh God, what was his Fred name? Fred Elliott. Fred Elliott. That's I it. didn't even have to look that one up. I was... <laughs> <laughs> Such an impression he has made on me. I say, you, made on me. <laughs> you perhaps shouldn't have offered that fact up quite so readily, Scott. I was going to cover for you. <laughs> we should have pretended that you had to look it up. I have no shame. So how interesting that our critical evaluation of the film at this point has been supplanted <laughs> by talk. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, if you want to get back onto the film, there's a tremendous face plant coming up here, which I think is another yes. pretty big example of method yes. acting. What a waste of some bolognese. <laughs> Just as his corny it's as a, It's feeling. a nice bit of screw. <laughs> <laughs> it soothes my scratched corneas. <laughs> yes, yes, I can confirm. It is definitely bolognese. <laughs> Although bizarrely, as he lifts it there, the colour is that of some sort of korma. <laughs> the interior locations for this film, these these home interiors, amazing. I'd love to visit these homes now, assuming that they're yeah. still standing and see what the, the decor and the arrangement is like. I can only imagine the people who own these houses, their front doors must still receive sort of the a biannual knock on the door from some sort of fan of the movie looking to. Yeah. <laughs> another, another great example of Route 1 special effects coming up here as they try to get the shot of uh, the perspective view of uh, Alex jumping out of the window simply by getting a camera and throwing it out of a window. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> no bearing whatsoever to like the geometry or physics of how a human body would, <laughs> would fall. some tick mm. is racked with motion emotion I say racked with emotion I've always wished that in that scene there as the camera panned out rather than a tape deck it was just revealed that there was a hooker with her head in his lap <laughs> and, then his, <laughs> and then his facial expressions would take on more of a more of a sense of a joyful dance of <laughs> of orgasm than uh, some sort of weird melange of fear, remorse, regret, enjoyment of Alex's <laughs> predicament. Ha <laughs> <laughs> 
pick a window, you're leaving. <laughs> <laughs> ay, 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 ay. <laughs> Wilhelm scream. <laughs> <laughs> if only it'd been the Wilhelm, if only it'd been the Wilhelm scream instead of that strangely sort of <laughs> effect. <laughs> what typical Kubrick's never shied away from here is just a near constant narration and it shows up in quite a few of his films and it, yeah. it's, it, I mean it's it's something that's almost universally reviled uh, Kubrick somehow gets away with it I was going to say that yeah he's notable in the fact that he gets away with it like it didn't hamper my enjoyment of uh, Barry Lyndon for example Yeah, even though it felt quite superfluous it certainly <laughs> he doesn't get the same reaction as uh, Ridley Scott did for Blade Runner for example yeah <laughs> This is supposed to be another scene of uh, how society has changed and is, is viewing, you know, almost sort of sex and pornography kind of things more, more easily just by having this sort of implied, well, sex scene between the doctor and the nurse. But it just seems like a silly comic moment to me uh, here. Seem, I was about to say it seems very out of place. That's it's a little yeah. bit jarring, actually. That I mean, that that is, in a sense, it goes hand in hand with that crazy sped up. Um, yeah, sex scene earlier with the two girls that he picks up at the record shop. Um, very odd kind of slapstick moment that would appear to have come out of the Benny Hill show. <laughs> Blamed on brain men. Brain men. <laughs> I, I blame most things on brain. <laughs> brain men. <laughs> the brain men did it and then ran away. <laughs> <laughs> I love all this, the way these, these casts applied here. What the hell is that he's wearing as a pair of briefs? <laughs> Some sort of strange corseted string-tied arrangement. <laughs> I love that there's a ba- packet of eat-me-dates in there as well. <laughs> Good God. That suit is a winner as well. Can I point it? I again, I would wear that suit now. Not the tie, <laughs> but definitely the suit. I'd be torn between wearing it and using it as curtains. To be fair, no, honestly, that I look at that now and I think to myself, God, if that was on, if that was auctioned on eBay, I'd, I'd bid up to a couple of grand for that suit. Yeah, it's the kind of thing I can imagine Farrell wearing, but I don't think I'd be able to pull it off. No, unfortunately, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Damn you, Pharrell. Damn you! <laughs> Khan! <laughs> Here we go, the wide-angle camera leading tracking shot. Clearly handheld as well. Far too fast for a dolly, yes. unless someone was <laughs> ripping up track pretty quickly. <laughs> I'm your psychiatrist with that hair. <laughs> well, having said that, her, again, that dress that she's wearing now, sort of that shift dress or whatever, knitted, you could probably get away with wearing that now. I couldn't. 
And she kind of suits that hair as well. There's something quite attractive about her with that hair. It's sort of halfway between blue rinse and anime. <laughs> Here come the tentacles. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Alex, you're reading into this whole movie far too deeply. <laughs> this was all just a bit of a laugh. This is a rubbish game of Pictionary. No hesitation or repetition. Oh, Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. Repetition. The boy you always quarrel with is seriously ill. <laughs> what is this exercise? Oh, just eggs. <laughs> just eggs, Alex. Just eggs. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Is that the only swearing in the actual film? I was, a, I was about to say, yeah. And why there? <laughs> I don't recall the F-bomb before that, yes. Again, this woman reminds me of someone slightly in the face. I don't know. I want to say Carolina Hearn. <laughs> Steaky wigs. Just steaks. <laughs> just steaks. <laughs> I was going to say at this point, eggy wigs and steaky wigs has literally <laughs> just degenerated into baby babble now, hasn't it? <laughs> Like, I would tell my two, two and a half year old daughter off for calling them Eggie Wigs. <laughs> They're Eggie Wiggy Wiggums! Look at that pinstripe suit that doctor's got on as well. Bloody magnificent. <laughs> I love the, I say torches of the damned, sir. Torches refrain. of the damned. Exactly, the repetition. 
Suffered the tortures of the damned, sir. The tortures of the damned. <laughs> Here comes the aeroplane. <laughs> Here comes the aeroplane with your eggy wags. Oh, I wanted steaky wakes. <laughs> or potato waitos. <laughs> Karate Wate. <laughs> Hell of a shirt as well. Again, I can't say I wouldn't wear it. I it's think well I'm, coordinated. I, I the, think I'd want to... Square, the... Yeah, yeah. I'd want to be hosting some sort of late night game show. Yeah. <laughs> You'd want to be hosting a revival of Strike at Lucky or something like that. Yes, Sale of the Century. And now, from Norwich, it's <laughs> Craig in a gaudy shirt. <laughs> We, we've lost all critical interest in this film at this point, haven't we? <laughs> we've said all we yes. have to say. We, I think we had some intelligent things to say, but now we're just saying eggy wigs. That was, Scott, for me, that was four beers ago. <laughs> <laughs> what is this anyway, Blue Moon? Uh, Blue Moon's to be highly recommended. Belgian, uh, Belgian-style wheat ale. Or whale, as it's called. Whale. You're one for your contractions at the moment, aren't you? I always am. I always seek efficiency in all things. Five point four percent. I've no idea what the other thing this Lagunitas IPA that I've had a couple of bottles of is. A recommended. Oh, yeah, that explains things. Six point two percent. They're on the heavy stuff. At the rough end of the IPA spectrum there. <laughs> I'll take that under advisement. <laughs> My Bram is nothing so powerful, but it does say on the label that it is a one-way bottle, and I'm not entirely clear on what that means. Is it anti-emetic? I mean, well, I've only been drinking out of it one way, but it seemed to be the obvious way, so... <laughs> <laughs> Jonathan Blow and Peter Molyneux are offering you a prize if you can find the other way. <laughs> the other side. There's no, no drinking what can't be. <laughs> no drinking what can't be drunk. <laughs> Here we go. That is a, that, Now those are speakers, right? Well, they might be. I they look, they look suspiciously though. like props to me. But, they yeah. look suspiciously like plywood props, but if those, yes. I mean, they would be quite easily assembled as speakers these days. Those are glorious yeah. speakers. Uh, 
now that I finally got around to wall mounting my TV, I'll whack those, <laughs> whack those either side quite happily. Knock out a couple of load-bearing walls and replace those with them. That'll do. Yeah. It's all, st- it's all stud partition in our house, Scott. Flo- floating joists. <laughs> Which annoyingly meant I had to buy expensive fixtures for my television mm-hmm. that would allow me to mount it on plasterboard as opposed to a 20 quid as the job. But there you go. Mm-hmm. Now, it looks uh, weird to me. I was never sure what, yeah, I was never sure what to make of the end of the film, obviously. Well, not obviously, sorry. You can't know my mind. <laughs> um, are we to, are we to understand that the, the reset button has been pushed there and Alex is now free of his conditioning? That's what I've always taken from it, yes. Yeah, and in that instance, what are we to make of anything that's transpired? That it was a laugh. (laughs) (laughs) We all had a good time. (laughs) Don't don't go reading too much into it. It was just a bit of fun. It were were right fun to vidae (laughs) and to assimilate into my Gulliver. The concepts of free will don't seem quite right until they're vidied on the screen, so yes. that's just sorted that out for us. Yes. And of course we get treated to the Gaspar Noe end credits. <laughs> well, I've quite enjoyed that, Scott. I've quite enjoyed recording this commentary with you. I, I certainly hope that anyone listening to this... if if not having had any further light shed on the subject matter, has at least enjoyed our rantings. Yes, that's all we can aim for. It's um, an interesting film, and I'm, I'm sure I'll keep reassessing this as I, I go forward in life, to be honest. It's something that always seems to be in the background for me. Because, uh, well, I can never quite of... make up my mind on how I feel about it. It's either very good or very disturbing. Yeah, I suspect I'll come to this as, you know, another ten years down the line again. I'll either watch this again tomorrow or it'll be 10 years before I watch it <laughs> and I suspect that I'll have a, a different opinion again but I'm glad actually that we chose this for the commentary um, track because it afforded me the opportunity to, to uh, revisit it that the schedule for the last podcast didn't and actually yeah I have I have appreciated it more this time and I, I understand where a lot of the, the controversy and I suppose a lot of people say misunderstanding comes from um, but I also... I also sympathise um, more now with the people. It's very easy to take that reactive stance of, um, well, of course it doesn't glorify violence, but actually, if anything, uh, the the biggest takeaway I have from this viewing is that on this occasion, actually, I actually understand where those who say this is a glorification of violence are coming from. I don't necessarily agree with them, but I understand how it can be interpreted as that. Um, yes, it's been an interesting rewatch. Thank you very much. Ta-da. Bye-bye.